Uh, let your memory and imagination go back to that very awkward time of junior high or middle school. Imagine uh, that you are one of the top basketball players on your team. You're one of the best basketball players on your team and you end up going to high school. Where there, you're one of the top basketball players on your high school team, even your AAU team. Eventually, one of the best basketball players in the city and even in the state. And you've got every coach in America, every D1 coach in America, trying to get you to come to their school. You attend the school and you become all-conference, all-American. Eventually, you're a draft pick in the NBA. And you can remember, imagine this, coming out for your first game in the Toyota Center and you hear the applause of thousands and thousands of people cheering for you and millions of others watching you online. And this goes on maybe for five, 10, 15 years as you enjoy a career in the NBA. Because for almost all of your childhood and even adult life, because of this gift of basketball that you've been given and the work that you've put into it, you're known as a basketball player. But what happens when the cheering stops? And it will stop. What happens when the crowds disappear? What happens when you're no longer on the websites and on the magazine covers? What do you do then? Or for many of you, perhaps you can't think like that. Um, maybe you're thinking about it this way, that you have gone to University of Houston, to the Bauer College, and you've gotten your MBA. You graduated at 24, 25 years old, and you get a job at perhaps one of the large firms here in town, a company here in town, and quickly, the managers and your supervisors recognize something in you, and they say to you, man, we, you're sharp, you're a hard worker. Man, you're such a great leader. You quickly become an executive vice president, and soon you find yourself in the C-suite, CIO, CEO, CFO, and you hear all the accolades and cheers like, we've never seen anyone like you. You're on the magazine covers. Articles are written about you and your leadership. You're the one that when people are in the elevator with you, you can hear the whispers saying, do, do you know who that is? But soon, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be another 35-year-old, 40-year-old who's below you, who's going to be the next hottest, greatest thing, who's got the MBA from you name the school. And next thing you know, the board is meeting with you saying, you know what, we think it's time for you to retire. And here you are, corner office, name in Fortune magazine, all these boards and prestigious things that you get to do. And now, there you are, no longer the CEO, even though your identity has been wrapped up for so many years as an engineer, an officer, a basketball player. How about this? For many of you all, probably since the day you can remember hearing people talk about you, you've always been the cutest, the most beautiful, the most handsome. And maybe in high school, you became the cheerleader, the prom queen, or you were the, uh, recognized for just your looks. Maybe you've even gotten into modeling. But here's what's gonna happen. And uh, this is something that aging, you can decelerate, you can slow it down. You can even accelerate it, but you can't stop it. I was in the checkout line at a grocery store one day and I was sitting there waiting to get my groceries checked out and there was a magazine, a little tabloid magazine and on the cover was a paparazzi picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger at the beach. Someone had taken a picture of him in his early 70s on the beach without a shirt on. And what did they put next to him? A picture of him in his prime when he was winning all the Mr. Olympias. And the comparison was saying, look at this guy now at 70 years old, 71 years old and look what he looked like when he was in his 20s. And I'm sitting there thinking, but that's going to happen to all of us. <laughs> I remember other one too, Zsa Gabor, for those of you who remember her. She was a beauty pageant winner, an actress in Hollywood, on TV, magazine covers. 
and a family member had taken a picture of her in the hospital. And there she was with her hair now receding and she had very little makeup on. And they took a picture of it and it was meant for family only, but someone leaked it to the press. And there on the magazine cover, this tabloid magazine, was a picture of Zsa, Zsa Gabor in now, I think, her 80s in the hospital. And there in her prime, this beauty queen winner. So here's the question I ask athletes as I work with athletes in the NBA and even the NFL, is where do you derive your identity from? To answer that question, that fundamental question in life of who am I? Because as you derive your identity, the questions you have to ask are twofold. First is, how long is it going to last? How long is it going to last? And secondly, what's the cost? And this is something that we all wrestle with because our world constantly gives us, this is how you should identify yourself. If you've got this car, if you've got this look, if you've got this office, then you're somebody and you can say, this is who I am. But here's the thing, even with parents, and I see this all the time with empty nesters, is that for years, your life has revolved around raising Johnny and Sally and Billy. And you're always known to that at school, on the sports teams. But a lot of parents, when that's taken away, when Billy and Sally go to college, all of a sudden they're like, who am I? I'm no longer this parent of this child. Now they're an adult and living almost an independent life. So what we're gonna do today is answer that question. Where can we derive our identity from? And it has to do with baptism. Where he talks about in the Great Commission, go therefore, make disciples of all ethnicities. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter two, where we'll see first our identifying with the Trinity. So notice this in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. He doesn't say in the names, the proper grammar would be in the names, plural, but he says in the singular, in the name, because it's another picture of the Trinity, the fact that God is one, and yet he is in three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he says that we are to, as we make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, baptizing them uh, in connection now to the Trinity, to identify their life in connection to the Trinity, the Godhead. And this is, if I could summarize it this way. So here's point number one. Baptism is our identity with the Trinity. Baptism is our identity with the Trinity. The act of baptism, where you get baptized, and I see several people here who I've baptized recently, as you get baptized, you are saying, I am publicly identifying with the Trinity because I'm getting baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That I was dead and buried with Jesus Christ. I was raised to new life and given new life and resurrected by the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 11, and now I've ascended and sit at the right hand of God the Father. You are saying publicly before your friends and family and coworkers, that's what I'm doing. So it's a point in time that you said on this day, on this Sunday or on this particular day, I'm saying I'm publicly identifying with the Trinity. If you've had this before, how many of you have ever had bad service at a restaurant? Really bad service at a restaurant. Anybody bad service at a restaurant? How many of you have ever had bad service if you've been in an apartment complex? They don't fix stuff and stuff's always broken. Any bad service apartments? And you've seen these signs then at apartment complexes and restaurants. It'll be emblazoned on the front, under new management. Have y'all seen that before? And basically what they're telling you is you may have had a bad experience at this apartment or restaurant or this business, but know that we are now under new management. And what you're saying publicly in baptism is, I am now under new management. You may have had a bad experience with me before. You may have been dissed by me before, but now I am under new management. And we find that in Ephesians chapter two, Ephesians chapter two, the verse we're gonna look at. Verse four, Ephesians two, four, but God, but God, underline that word, but God. 
Because here's the thing, God always has the last word. Because in verses one through three, he's talking about how dead we were, how wretched we were. And he didn't leave us in that state because he says, but God. And here's what you can say over any situation you face in life, because God always has the last word, is you may say, you know, the doctor says this, or my boss says this, but God. What does God have to say about your situation? So he says, interjecting, contrast, but God. Being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even we were dead in our transgressions or wrongdoings. Here's the three things he did. In the past tense, he made us alive together with Christ. This wasn't you, this was with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us up, there it is again, with him and seated us uh, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So three things he does. Made us alive, he raised us up, and he seated us with him. So again, baptism is a picture of that, that you and I were dead and buried with Jesus. We were resurrected, given new life by the Holy Spirit, and now we've ascended with Jesus to sit at the right hand of the Father. That's what baptism is a picture of. Um, I'm not recommending this movie, but there's a movie. It's one of the few Matt Damon comedy movies. It's called Stuck on You with Greg Kinnear. And in that movie, he plays with Greg Kinnear, Bob and Walt Tenner, and they're conjoined twins. Their twins were born connected together. They're joined And this is what this text is saying. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, just like Bob and Walt Tenner, if Bob went to the restaurant, Walt went with him. If Bob went on a date, then Walt went with him. If Walt went to play hockey, then Bob went with him. Whatever happened to one twin happened to the other. Because of your faith in Jesus Christ, whatever happened to Jesus has now happened to you. That's what this text is saying. Because you've been united and connected or conjoined to Jesus Christ. So the first thing he says is in... uh, Verse five, made us alive together. Again, the spirit made us alive, Romans 8, 11, and raised us up. A few weeks ago, we celebrated the resurrection. You've been resurrected a new life. And notice this passage. This doesn't get preached on a lot. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. That word places is in italics because it's not there. It should say this, and seated us with him in heaven, in the heaven, in Christ Jesus. So here's a question based on that verse. How many of y'all believe If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the moment you die, the moment you breathe your last breath on this earth, that you will go to heaven. How many of y'all believe that if you put your faith in Jesus? Not a trick question, y'all. I believe that too. But here in this text, he says, he says, not will seat us one day in the heavenly places. It's in the past tense. We have already been seated in the heavenly places in Christ. We've been seated in heaven. So here's the thing. Spiritually, You are already in heaven. And one day when you die physically, what is actual will happen. You are already seated at the right hand of the Father. So here's a picture. What's the application? Here's the application. When you and I pray to God the Father through Jesus Christ, the Father's not millions and billions of miles away. God, holler if you hear me, like I'm way down here. Listen to me. Look at the person sitting your left. Look at the person sitting your left. Ask them a question. You are seated at the right hand of that person next to you. And that's what prayer is. Why do I say that? Look at Ephesians 1.20. Ephesians 1.20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, that's Jesus, and seated him as right hand in the heavenly places. Again, places in italics, in the heavenly So Jesus died, he rose again, he ascended, he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. And this text says, I don't know the Bible you're reading, the Bible reading right here says in verse six, 
and seated us with him. So now when we pray to God the Father, it's as if you're talking to someone where God the Father says, you're at my right hand. You're right there. So you simply have to look to your left. That's how intimate prayer is. And hopefully that changes your perspective on prayer that you're not down here on earth and God is somewhere way up there in the heavens, but now you are seated with him. But here's a question. I'm still here on earth. And you're saying I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. How can that be? Well, we've all experienced that in the last 14 months. Why do you say that? Well, uh, this Thursday, I'm teaching a class to hundreds of pastors around the U.S. And on Friday, I'm teaching the same, a different class of the same group of pastors all around the U.S. Dr. Tony Evans is having his pastor's conference, and this year it's virtual. Normally, it's live there in Dallas on the campus of Oklahoma Bible Fellowship, but this year, we're having it virtual. So we will have people from all around the world tuning in this class. So on Thursday afternoon, I'm teaching a class on developing sermon illustrations, analogies, and pictures, and word pictures. And on Friday, I'm doing a class on cross-cultural ministry, how you can become a multicultural ministry. And so we had a meeting this last Friday, I mean, last Wednesday. And here's the thing, we've all done this. The meeting was in Dallas. The meeting was in Dallas. Three hours, four hours away by car. For some of you, two and a half hours, but three or four hours away. <laughs> I had a busy day, packed with meetings almost since I got here. And so the question is, how did you go to a meeting in Dallas when you're in Houston? Easy, like we've all been doing, Zoom. That's what we did. So here I am attending a meeting in Dallas through Zoom. And the director of the conference was like, hey, we need this. This is the software you need to do the virtual stuff. You need someone to check your chat room to ask questions. and all. You need to be doing all this stuff. And so I was able, though I was physically in Houston, right there across the street, across the parking lot. Physically in Houston, I was also in Dallas in this meeting. Because why? Because of Zoom. And that's what God does. Because of your conjoining with Jesus Christ, what God has done now is you're physically here, but you're already actually in heaven. You've been zoomed up into heaven, if you can use that word picture. And so when we pray to God, God says, you know what? You're physically here on earth, but you're already in heaven as well. You're seated at the right hand of the Father. So prayer is simply looking to your left and saying, God, these are the needs I have. This is what I'm going through at work and in my marriage right now. That's what prayer is. So he says, that's what baptism is. It's a picture of dying and being buried with Christ, being resurrected by the Spirit, now ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's what Ephesians is about. Ephesians is an epistle about the church, not the building, not the organization in terms of like Bay City Fellowship, but the family, the body. That's what Ephesians is about, both individually and collectively. And he says, you are brought into this church, into the church, not Bay City, but the church, capital C, because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Where do I get that from? He says in verse seven, so that in the ages to come, he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is what he's saying there in verse seven. He says, one day in eternity, in the eternal kingdom, in heaven, when you and I are there, he's gonna show us off as trophies of grace. So when angels and others may ask, hey, hey God, what, is, what does grace look like? What does your unmerited kindness look like? He simply will just point to me. He'll point to you and say, here's someone that didn't deserve it. Here's a sinner who became a saint. Someone who did not receive my mercy who's now received my mercy. This is a product, a trophy of grace. How do we get that? Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. In verse eight, he says again, it's grace through faith. The, uh, the word this the pronoun and it, what is it talking about? 
Is it talking about grace or faith? Which is the gift? And I would say it's the whole package. The whole package of salvation. Grace, faith, buried with Christ, raised by the Spirit, seated at the right hand of the Father. The whole package is a gift from God. We did nothing to earn it. I don't know about you all, but I know I'm pretty messed up and broken, and there's nothing I've done to earn it. Nothing I've done to merit it. Why do we say that? Because again, he says, verse nine, not a result of works. I've given this much. I've attended this. I've served this. I've done all this. Not a result of works. He says, uh, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And that's what baptism is. And if you have not been baptized, if you have not publicly said, I'm identifying with the Trinity, you can simply go to bycfellowship.com slash baptism, and you can sign up for that. Our next baptism, I think, is June 13th. And we're thinking about this now as a staff. We're saying, hey, how can we make baptism a public testimony? How can we make it so that you can say to your coworkers and friends, hey, I'm under new management. I'm identifying with the Trinity. How can we do that? So we thought about like going to Memorial City Mall or something and using like their pool in the middle and baptizing people there. We thought about going to like a gym. If you're a member of a gym and you say, hey, I want to get baptized in our pool at the gym and have all my workout buddies and friends there to see me get baptized. We're thinking about these things so that we can again say, I'm under new management. I'm under new management. I'm identifying with the Trinity at this point. So that's a point in time. That's a moment that we do publicly. But here's the other part. That word baptizo means to immerse or to dip. And so if you look at this shirt, this, this shirt is cotton. It used to be a white cotton shirt and someone dipped it. They baptized it. They immersed it in some dye and it now has a new identity. It's an orange shirt. So the second point is this. Baptism is our identifying with the Trinity. Our, I'm sorry, our identity with the Trinity. Not our identifying, our identity. Like I mentioned to you before, whatever you drive your identity from, my work, what I do, my looks, or my friends, or my corporate office, or whatever it is, how much money I have, whatever you derive your identity from, the question you have to ask is, how long is it going to last, and what's the cost? And sometimes the cost is really high to pay. And here, what we're going to find in 1 Peter chapter 2, so turn there, 1 Peter 2, is part of our new identity in Christ, in the Trinity. 1 Peter 2. And there are hundreds of verses in the New Testament about our new identity in Christ, who you are now that you've placed your faith in Christ. And if you take the whole scope of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, there are thousands of verses of who you are in relation to God. And these are the things I encourage you as you study the Bible to underline, to highlight, because this is why. Because regularly you'll be tempted to try to identify who you are, your identity from who you used to be or something that's temporary, and you'll get bombarded regularly by the world with messages, and from the enemy, messages saying, you're a nobody unless you have hair like this, and then you could be a somebody. You're a nobody unless you drive this car, and if you drive this car, then you're a somebody. You're a nobody unless you have this office or this title, and if you do, then you're a somebody. And that's why it's important, vitally important, to be a disciple, to grow in your identity in Christ, and in making disciples, those people that you're discipling to help them grow. And this is something that happens in a lifetime. So baptism, the act, moment in time. I'm identifying with the Trinity, but your identity is something that you grow into. So let's look at this. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And there's that word again. But, but, but. He says, Jesus was rejected. 
He says, and maybe you've been rejected. Maybe you've been overlooked. Maybe you feel like I'm not a C-suite. I'm not a manager. I'm not a professional athlete. I'm not beautiful. I'm not handsome. I'm not athletic. I'm not this or that. And you drive your identity, and this is what Peter says. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. I'm a child of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here's the four things in this verse. And there are hundreds of passages on your identity in Christ now that you've been conjoined to him. But I'm just gonna cover four. The first thing he says in verse nine, you are a chosen race. You're a chosen race. You are a chosen race. Uh, this translation is the New American Standard 2020 version. They just came out with a new update last November. But the 1995 version says, you are a chosen race. And this is going out to everyone who's placed their faith in Christ, who's ever felt rejected, who's ever felt unwanted, that a God who needs nobody, a God who's self-sufficient, self-existent, he doesn't need any of us in here. A God who's self-existent, self-sufficient, doesn't need any of us, has chosen, picked you. Come on, y'all. A God who doesn't need anybody, the self-existent God, he chose you. He chose you. He picked you. So if you ever felt unwanted and unpicked and looked over, he says, this God, out of his grace and mercy and his love, he chose you. We are a chosen race. And if you've ever heard this, in our world, we live in a racially divided world. We live in a racially divided city. We live in a world full of racial injustice even. And here he says to us, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, because of our union with Jesus Christ, every single one of us is a part of the chosen race. All right, y'all with me? And he's not talking about skin. He says your skin may be different, your hair texture may be different, your country origin may be different. But he says, because of faith in Jesus Christ, you and I are a chosen race. We're the family of God. And I believe this. I believe it's this truth of Scripture our identity in Christ, that as a body, as a family, should unite us. That we may have different skin colors, country origin, hair texture, different socioeconomic backgrounds. We may have gone to different colleges, but what unites us and connects us is this. Because of faith in Jesus, because of the work of God, we are the family of God. We're God's chosen race. We're chosen people. And the sad thing is, let me just mention this too. Um, pray for us. Uh, the elders of our church have said, we want to reflect the kingdom of God as a church. We want to reflect the city of Houston, the most diverse city in America. And God has said, why am I here? Because God has put you here to make disciples of all ethnicities, all nations. That's our purpose. That's where we get our meaning from as we make disciples, as we invest the life of Christ relationally in others. And so we started this team called the Imago Dei team. Imago Dei means image of God. And this team is going to gather, we're meeting today for the very first time, to pray and discern and ask God to study the scriptures, to gather together, and we're going to give suggestions and recommendations to the elders. And there are people right here in this room, I see a couple of y'all right now, who are going to go to the elders and say, here's some of the things as we've studied the scriptures, as we've prayed, that we can do so that, listen to me, everyone and anyone 
can call YC Fellowship at Spring Branch their home church. A amen, anybody, right? Everyone and anyone creating the image of God can call this church their home church, regardless of their cultural background, ethnic background, socioeconomic background, educational background, even criminal background. They can say, you know what? This is a church that welcomes me, just like Jesus Christ welcomed me into his family. And that's what we're attempting to do. And we know that because of that, we're going to encounter opposition from the enemy because God does not, I mean, the enemy does not want to see God's people united. And we want to be harmonious as well. So would you pray for us? Because again, our desire is that we being the chosen race, the chosen people would unite us. And so that you can say, you know what? Man, I got a coworker. I'm white. He's African-American. I'm white. She's Hispanic. I'm this. They come from this neighborhood. You know what? They, I know, have a criminal background. Well, you can say, hey, come to Bicey Fellowship Spring Rest. Come join us at 9 or 11. The preaching's eh, but everything else is great. <laughs> and that's the church that we want to be so that we can truly fulfill the Great Commission and make disciples of all ethnicities, of all backgrounds. Are y'all with me? Amen. Secondly, he says this in verse nine, you're a royal priesthood. You can cross out the word royal and say kingly, kingly. Amen. That we are a kingly priesthood. And originally, all these things, the four things we're talking about were applied to Israel physically, but now apply to us spiritually. This is who we are in Jesus. That you and I are princes and princesses because we're a kingly priesthood. We're sons and daughters of the king. And that's why he uses the word royal. And this is what a priest does. A priest is an intercessor. A priest is an intercessor. In the Old Testament, God wanted all of Israel to be a kingdom of priests. They disobeyed, so only the Levites were priests. What he's calling us to do, every single one of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, is you are a priest. Amen. You are called to worship, to serve, and to intercede as a priest. Not just me as a pastor, but every single one of us is called to worship, to serve, and to intercede. And if I can encourage you as intercessors, Tonight, from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m., in this building right here, we're going to have a prayer gathering where we will intercede on behalf of our unsaved friends and family and coworkers and the nations and those parts of the world that have not heard the gospel. Because again, God is not asking us to do the work. We simply participate in the work where God is already at work. And so we pray and say, God, would you be at work? We're asking you, we're begging you to send workers out in the harvest. So tonight, from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m., we'll gather in here and intercede as priests. But secondly is this, next Saturday, March or May 1st, from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., we're gonna gather for a prayer meeting and the prayer meeting theme is discernment. So if you're here today and you're saying, I need discernment from the Lord. I have a coworker who needs discernment. I have a friend who needs discernment. They're, they're looking at this young lady they've been dating and they're asking God, is this the one I should propose to? There's someone I know who's saying, God, I'm looking at this other job opportunity. Is this from you? And they need discernment. And if you need discernment, Next Saturday, 8 to 9 a.m., right in this building right here, we'll gather together to intercede on behalf of one another. So he says, you are a royal priesthood. We're all priests. Notice this next thing, the third thing. We're a holy nation, a holy nation. That word holy means to be set apart, to be distinct. And there's all this talk recently of what's called Christian nationalism, where politics and patriotism have become one and the same with faith. But here's what he's talking about. He's not talking about that kind of nationalism. He's saying that as the children of God, as a family of God, that we are a unique nation. We live in America. 
We live in this nation, but we are a Christian nation, a what I would call a subset, a distinct people, a set-apart people group. Some of you look at me kind of cross-eyed. Let me try to uh, illustrate this. Um, some of you in here may have gone to Texas A&M University. Some of you all in here may have gone to Texas Tech University. Some of you all have gone to... Some of y'all have, may have gone to the University of Texas at Austin, Texas Christian University, Baylor. You may have gone to these larger entities, these schools. But here's a question for you. Is there anyone in here who went to those institutions who perhaps while you were there, you pledged a fraternity or sorority? You are a Fiji. You are a SAE. You're an Alpha Chi Omega. You're an AKA. You're Alpha Phi Alpha. You're a Kappa. If you were in a fraternity while you're in college, raise your hand. If you were in a fraternity, come on, don't be shy. Don't be shy about it, all right? If you were in a sorority when you were in college, whatever school you went to, raise your hand. And this is what a sorority or fraternity is. A sorority or fraternity says, we're still part of the larger organization. We're still part of Texas A&M University. We're still part of the University of Texas. We're still part of whatever college it is. We're still a part of that. But we have this distinct subset. We have these three Greek letters on our chest that say we have done something privately now that says because of that, I look at somebody, they may be from LaGrange, Texas, or Longview, or from Dallas. They may have a different ethnic and cultural background, city of origin, and yet because we've all pledged together, we've gone through these secret rituals together, now I look at him and call him a brother. We still go to the larger entity of this college, but because we're now part of this set-apart, distinct people group called the fraternity. Now, I call him a brother, even though we may have different backgrounds. And you know what? That's what the church is. The church is a Christian nation. It's a holy subset. It's a group that's been uh, saying that we're a distinct people group. We don't wear three Greek letters across our chest. We simply say we identify with the Alpha and Omega, Jesus Christ. And because of that, now, someone who's from a different background than me, a different city than me, different criminal background than me, different socioeconomic background than me, I call him a brother or sister because we are now part of a holy nation. We're part of a fraternity and sorority that is universal. And I'll say this, I'll say this, that this fraternity and sorority is greater than any fraternity and sorority you can be part of. Why? Because it's transnational, it's global, it's universal. It transcends history even. It goes back 2,000 years. And we need to act like it, y'all. Thank you for the folks over here helping me preach today. Thank you. I'm going to focus over here. I have a good friend of mine. Um, he's the principal of a Christian school in Chicago. And he was also in college in Alpha Phi Alpha, the oldest black fraternity in America. He flew, his brother works for an airline, so he's able to get free tickets or uh, cheap tickets. He flew from Chicago to Atlanta. And on his way from Chicago to Atlanta, somewhere he lost his wallet. So imagine landing in a city and you've lost your wallet. You can't get Uber, you can't get a hotel, all that stuff. So this is what he does. He's got his cell phone, so he calls churches in Atlanta. He's a Christian principal of a, of a Christian school. Calls some churches. Greatest fraternity and sorority in the world, the body of Christ, the family of God. He calls church number one, says, hey, I, I've just landed and I lost my wallet. Can somebody come and help me out? Click, no answer. He calls three or four churches and none of them are able to help him out. And when I say able, none of them offer to help him out. So he calls the local office for Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. 
and says, hey, this is my name. I, I pledged this year from this campus. And he said, I just lost my wallet. He says, before I hung up the phone, a car pulled up and said, hey, we'll take you to the hotel. We'll take care of everything, meals, hotel, whatever you need. And he said, Icky, what a sad state that the body of Christ, the greatest fraternity sorority in the world, we have brothers and sisters from all around the world because of our identity with Jesus Christ, refused to help me. And yet a fraternal organization that won't stand into eternity came to help me. And so this is my plea, y'all, and I believe Bayou City Fellowship is a church like this, that we will reach out and love on people regardless of their different backgrounds. If they say, I'm a Christian, you may be Methodist, Pentecostal, whatever you are, you say, you know what, we are going to help come and serve. And I love even that barbecue meal that we did a couple weeks ago. We served over 2,000 people saying, you know what, because we love Jesus and we identify with the greatest returning story in the world, we're going to serve you because we are a part of a holy nation, a distinct group. We're still part of the larger entity. I'm an American, but we are a part of a subset, a holy, I mean a subset, a distinct people group known as the body of Christ. And then finally, this thing, he says this, a people for God's own possession. Some translations say God's own special possession, God's special possession. And so this is the word there. The word is, uh, a nation is the word ethnos. The word here is laos, it's people, from which we get the English word Lady or lay elder. It means God's special possession because he lives among us. He owns us. He wants us. He, he desires us. We're his special possession. Again, going from slaves to sin, slaves to fear, enemies of God. Then now God says we're God's special possession. Um. And that's speaking of us both individually and collectively because he says, this is how special you are. The Holy Spirit is now living in you as a sign, as a pledge to say, this is how much you, I, I wanna be with you. You're my possession. So here's the thing. If you've ever felt rejected, overlooked, unwanted, again, a God who's self-existent, self-sufficient, says, hey, I'm calling your relationship with me. You are my possession, my possessed people. I want to dwell with you and live with you and fellowship with you. God's best possession. And notice this. Whenever God gives us our identity, be, it always leads to, now this is what you do out of what you be. He says there in verse nine, so that you may proclaim, the very end, so that you may proclaim, ex angeletos, ex meaning out loud, angeletos, angel means messenger, you may be my messengers and proclaimers of the excellences of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Ephesians 2 says the exact same thing. Kingdom of darkness in the kingdom of light. He says, verse 10, for now you are uh, the, uh, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God and you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. He contrasts it again. This is who you be, not people, not mercy. Now you've received mercy and you are now God's people. And he says, because of that, Share that with others. Proclaim that to others. It's the Great Commission again. He's saying, look for opportunities as God opens those doors to say, you know what? This is who I be. I'm God's kid. I'm God's child. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. I'm forgiven. I'm beloved. This is who I be. And this is who you can be too in Jesus Christ. Um, and that's part of, again, discipleship, of making disciples, is we... Help people, point in time, 
baptize, publicly identify under new management, identify with the Trinity, buried with Christ, raised by the Spirit, ascend to the right hand of the Father. Prayer is no longer a distant thing, it's an intimate thing. But then over time, a lifetime, we grow in our identity with the Trinity and we help people grow in that because again, daily you're gonna get bombarded to live your old ways, to identify who you used to be, a slave to fear, a slave to sin. And now even the world's gonna say, unless you have this office, this title, this role, you're not important, you don't matter. But to say, you know what? This is my eternal identity in Jesus Christ. I'm gonna give this word to parents. Parents, your children are gonna get bombarded regularly by media, social media, by their friends, that because of the texture of their hair, the color of their skin, or because they're not rich or whatever, that they don't matter. And your job as a parent, as you disciple your children, is to help them grow in their new identity as well. And even what I would say from Psalm 139, just general revelation, that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. God made them and created them. He made them, that word fearfully and wonderfully can both be translated in the English word awesome. Awesome, awesome, God made you. And so no matter what your friends say and you look on social media, they seem so happy. They have this, they have that. I don't have this. I'm insufficient, all that. You can say, hey, this is who you are in the Lord. And if you came to our house as our kids grew up, my wife says this all the time because they've had times that they have not been on a varsity team as a freshman or whatever the thing may be. And we've always said to them, you are a cog, a C-O-G. You are a child of God. You're a child of God. And we remind them that you are a cog. If you ask our kids today, what's something your parents drilled in your head over and over again, they would say they always kept us calling us a cog, that we are a child of God. No matter if people like us or don't like us, friends or no friends, he says, we say to them, you're a cog. That's your identity. Um, speaking of my kids, my daughter has a very unique business hobby. Uh, it's something I love to do with her when she comes home to Houston. She loves to go to Goodwill and secondhand stores. And what she does when she goes to Goodwill is she finds shirts and clothing that other people have rejected and thrown away, given away. And she'll buy them for 50 cents to a dollar. And then what she does is she brings them home. And usually they're white or light colored shirts. So she finds these shirts that people have given away, thrown away, don't want anymore, rejected. And then what she does is she gets her, all her dyes out. She gets her rubber bands out. She gets some wax out. And she takes these shirts that other people have rejected. And what she does with them is she makes them into beautiful tie-dye shirts. And so she gives them basically what's known as a new identity. Someone else may have said, I don't want this anymore and rejected it. But what she does now is she baptizes them and says, now you have a new identity. And she sells those shirts that were selling for 50 cents to a dollar, now for 10, 15, 20 dollars. Because now they have a new identity. And that's what God does with us. The Bible says it this way in the same passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, that Jesus was a cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected. He was a reject has now become the chief cornerstone by which all of us in here say, I will orient my life according to the chief cornerstone. Even though at one point he was a rejected stone. And here's the thing that I told a good friend of mine. I read an article many years ago. There's a guy in Texas, Cedar Hill, Texas, by the name of Billy Trailer. And Billy Trailer has a truck. And what he does, he drives along the highways and byways and he'll stop when he'll see some trash and he throws the trash in the back of his truck. Aluminum cans and cans, fence posts and barbed wire. Stuff that people have thrown away on the roadside. Barrels and cans. 
even clothing. He takes those things back, all that trash in the back of his truck to his studio. And then he begins to weld and glue and paint and he turns trash into works of art. All the stuff that people have discarded, now he turns into works of art that sell for thousands of dollars. So I remember talking to our worship pastor and I said to our worship pastor at the time at Oakland Bible Fellowship, I said, hey, I read this article, this amazing story about this guy who turns trash into treasure, Billy Trailer. And he said, Icky, and he was from Oakland. He said, man, there's an artist in Oakland that's been doing that for like 20, 30 years. He turns trash into treasure. And I said, hey, I don't want to just, just correct you, but there's someone else who's been doing that far longer than that. Because I know a Savior that for 2,000 years, he's been taking people who are sinners and slaves of sin and now making them works of art. That's what he says in Ephesians 2, that you and I are his handiwork. The word there is masterpiece. That's what he does. He transforms us into his handiwork, his artistry, his masterpiece. And that's what he's been doing. So again, my prayer is this. If you have not been baptized publicly to say, I, I'm a follower of Jesus. I identify with the Trinity. BicyFellowship.com slash baptism. Sign up there. And the other thing is, for all of us individually, as you study the Bible, as you get into the Word, when you read a passage that says, this is who you are in Jesus, underline that. And say, I don't care what the world says. I don't even care what social media says. I don't care even how I feel. This is who God says I am. This is my identity, not just right now, but for eternity. It will last beyond my looks, last beyond my job title. This will go on forever. And then to transfer that to those who are discipling and saying, you know what, this is who you are. Don't let the world lie to you. Don't let the enemy lie to you and deceive you and trick you. This is who you are. He's turned trash, rejects, into treasure, his masterpiece. Let's pray. God, uh, this would quickly bring pride to ourselves that we are the masterpiece. <laughs> God, may it not be so. May it give you glory. You're the artist. You're the redeemer. You're the one who's out searching for those who reclaim and repurpose. We're the rejects. We're the ones that have turned from you. So God, we're grateful for that. God, I pray now that if there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith in Christ, today be the day they place their faith in Christ so that they too can be buried with Christ, raised anew by the Spirit, and now seated at your right hand. God, I pray for those here who have yet to be baptized publicly who say, I now identify with the Trinity, the work of the Trinity in my life, that I've been now conjoined, connected to Christ, that today be the day they say, I want to do that. And God, for all of us in here who've placed our faith in Christ already, to grow over a lifetime in a world full of ideas and notions about who we are, as we ask that great existential ontological question, who am I? That we would not answer it with what we do work-wise, not answer it by how much money we have or the way we look, but answer it based on the truth of what you say about us in your word because of our union with Jesus Christ. A chosen race, a chosen people a holy nation, God's special possession, a kingdom of priests, royal priesthood. And all the other verses, God, we're beloved, we're forgiven, 
We're all child of God. We're not slaves of righteousness. God, we would grow in our identity with that God. We ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.